Welcome to the British American Football Coaches Association podcast, a resource designed to support both British football coaches and coaches from around the world. This podcast features special guests discussing techniques, scheme, philosophies and culture for the sport of American football to help develop and grow the game worldwide. Now here's your host, Adam Lillis. Hello and welcome to the BAFCA Coaching Podcast. We are less than two weeks away from the BAFCA Virtual Convention. This will take place on the 3rd, 4th and 5th of July and will feature a number of presentations from experienced coaches, both pre-recorded and live clinics. It plans to be a fantastic event, so make every effort to attend. Today we are talking to Coach Kelly Bills about being an effective offensive coordinator, so let's listen in to Coach Bills. Hello and welcome to the BAFCA Coaching Podcast with me, your host Adam Lillis. I'm excited to be joined today by the offensive coordinator of the Dixie State University Trailblazers, Coach Kelly Bills. Coach, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Adam. Thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Um, first question I always ask coaches is, for those listeners that might not be aware of who you are and where you've come from, would you like to give us a, a rundown of how you first got into football, how you progressed into coaching and how you've ended up at Dixie State University? Yeah, absolutely. So it's been a, a really a really great journey. It's a uh, I got a very supportive wife who loves the sport and uh, was willing to make sacrifices along the way. But I actually started uh, coaching as a volunteer assistant coach at Brigham Young University. It's a short BYU for short in Utah. It's a Division One FBS school, and uh, played there. and And the head coach there offered me a position as a as a volunteer assistant coach and to be honest with you, I didn't, I didn't like it at the beginning. It was, you know, I was not getting paid and uh, working a lot of hours and, and uh, didn't really have good balance. And I was probably a little immature <laughs> to start. I was young and, but I kind of, as I went on and, and kind of learned more about the profession, I, I started loving it. And so I, and then I kept getting promoted year after year. And so eventually I, I got hired as a graduate assistant uh, working with the quarterbacks and the uh, offensive line. Uh, shortly after my time there, I got hired as the offensive coordinator at a division three school, uh, south of Portland, Oregon called Willamette university. It's a non-scholarship, uh, non-athletic scholarship school. So they just, uh, work with financial aid. So you get very bright, uh, disciplined kids. It was a lot of fun. Learned a lot about, you know, the, the persistence and diligence of recruiting, uh, scored a lot of points. Uh, from there I went to Utah state university. I felt like I needed to get a little bit more connected. Uh, within the profession. So went to Utah State University, was a quality control and a graduate assistant there, working with the quarterbacks and the wide receivers. And then I got hired as the uh, wide receiver coach and the quarterbacks coach at uh, Weber State University. That's uh, in Ogden, Utah. Spent three years there. Uh, had a phenomenal time there. Had a phenomenal run. We won two Big Sky championships there. And, and uh, then uh, from there, went to Central Washington University, coaching the quarterbacks and, and running the offense as the coordinator. And then Made my, my, made my way back to Utah uh, to get my wife back to Utah and uh, be a Division I uh, offensive coordinator at Dixie State University. So very, very excited to be here. And uh, it's, like I said, it's been, it's been a winding, uh, long winding career, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't change any of it for anything. We've, we've loved every minute, minute of it. Absolutely. Um, so just uh, a little bit of a sidebar correct me if I'm wrong, my understanding is that Dixie State football is a Division Two school, but as of a few months from now, they'll be moved up to being a Division One FCS school. Is that correct? 
That's correct. Yeah. So we were, uh, it was originally, uh, a long time ago at junior college and then they transitioned to the, to the, uh, division two level. And then uh, obviously with every transition, there's a bit of a, uh, learning curve, if you will, um, for lack of a better term, but they, uh, had the best season in school history last year at the division two level. And then as of, uh, end of June of this year, we're going to be uh, moving to, uh, FCS division one. And so we're, that was a big reason why I came. I think that transition is a, is a lot of fun. I think there's going to be some obvious challenges with it as far as just that transition, but I, I love the challenge. We understand that, uh, it's a special place. We understand that there's going to be a lot of growth and a lot of, uh, uh, kind of development with our guys and then but but we really feel like once we make that transition uh, fully that we'll, uh, we'll, we'll we'll be a force to be reckoned with and we'll be a powerhouse. Sure so I'd, I'd love to know more about that in terms of you and the other coaches on the staff you talked about some challenges and obviously there's going to be some positive as well from that having made, made that jump what sort of things as a coach are you going to look to have to overcome from making that jump because over in the UK we have a promotion relegation system so teams every year are making a jump from a lower league sure. up to a bigger league or vice versa so be interesting to hear some of the challenges you think you're going to face and how you're going to overcome them. It's a really good question so I, I kind of to answer your question I, I'm going to go back to Weber State so I was the quarterbacks coach at Weber State University we're a, a powerhouse FCS program and we, uh, we went up and played uh, Cal Berkeley in, uh, at their stadium. And it was, I mean, obviously they're a level up from us. And we went toe-to-toe to them uh, with them the entire game. It was, I think, 17-17 to at one point. Um, we thought we had that game uh, won uh, towards the fourth quarter, beginning of the fourth quarter. And then towards the middle and the end of that fourth quarter, Adam, uh, they – started bringing their backups off the bench and those backups were scholarship guys and our backups were some were scholarship and some were not. And so I think that's the big difference when you move up a level, you're dealing with uh, scholarship differences. And so as a division two school, uh, we don't have as many scholarships as those FCS division one schools. And so we are essentially working with the majority of our, our guys that we have on our roster are, are, very good players, but, uh, we're, we are recruiting, you know, we, we have recruited to a division two program for a lot of years. And so now we're essentially going to be playing a division one, uh, schedule with division two, uh, players. And, uh, we, uh, we feel like we can compete and compete good. Uh, but, uh, bottom line is I think you see the big difference with the depth and the level of depth is, uh, is, is I think the difference between division two FCS and FBS. Sure. Um, so we're, today we're going to be talking about uh, coordinating an offense. Obviously, you are an offense coordinator. Before we get into that, do you have a coaching philosophy that you like to hang your hat on, regardless of where you are and what position you have? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's been honestly the uh, really the secret sauce to my success. I'm, I'm I don't claim to be the guru of anything, but you have to be good at what you do, and you have to have a niche as a as a uh, successful collegiate coach especially in the United States and so my philosophy is based on effort and it uh, I'm an effort-based coach I demand effort I love accountability I love culture and so regardless of the talent that you have and regardless of what scheme you can or cannot run 
my philosophy on effort and accountability and toughness always remains the same. And so I feel confident going into any game. If I can get my players to run through a wall for me, and if I feel like they, the culture is set uh, as such that, I, that, that we can compete with ever, anyone as far as toughness and, and discipline and effort, I feel like we can have a fighting chance in any game we play. And then I, I, I believe that having that mindset and having that philosophy really uh, provides you with uh, kind of a constant uh, philosophy as you go through this. And, and then you're not really uh, basing your confidence or your, your success on kind of the schemes and winning and losing games. You're just basing it off of how hard do your kids play for you and what's that culture like. I think that stuff uh, is very important. I think that that can kind of guide you through this career. Sure. And we've had culture talks on this podcast previously. And it's interesting that you say um, kids playing hard for you, kids running through a wall for you and those type of things. And it's evident that we've seen a lot of examples from many teams that, that has overcome talent on other teams that don't necessarily have that culture. But I'm interested to know whether you've had, if you've got any examples of the things you've done practically within your teams to build that culture that sure. could use over here in the UK. Yeah, absolutely. So I, every, every place I've gone and I, I really, this is a copycat business. I think with any sport or really any organization, even outside of athletics, you're lying if you're saying you don't copy things from other successful organizations. So to be honest with you, I copied a lot of my culture, uh, philosophy and beliefs from, uh, my experience at BYU. I, I was trained by a head coach named Bronco Mendenhall, who currently is the head coach of university of Virginia. And he just turned their program around from, uh, they were kind of a low lower tier ACC team. And he just, uh, had them competing for the ACC championship last year. And he, bases everything off of effort and those same things that I touched on earlier. But what I do is uh, I, I'm a big stickler on details and effort, like I said. And so there's a few drills that I do uh, where we literally, uh, we tell our guys, Hey, these drills don't really have anything to do with football, but they do have something to do with your effort. And it's a way to gauge that effort. Um, there's one drill in particular I call uh, perfect tens. And it basically consists of uh, cones being set 10 yards apart. And you have your uh, players uh, basically in, in three lines. Uh, one line uh, being basically uh, set on a, on a yard line. And I call them up. They have to hold hands simultaneously up to the line, uh, up to those cones. I tell them on command to get down. They have to get down on command in a three-point stance. And then I tell them to go. And they have to simultaneously sprint through that 10-yard marker. Um, it sounds pretty easy. Sounds, sounds pretty unconventional. But anytime there is a snake in the line coming up to the, the cone, anytime anyone's late getting their hand down, anytime anyone false starts or puts their, accidentally puts their, their toe on the line, anytime anyone pulls up short with, uh, uh, between that 10-yard you know, uh, yards they have to sprint through, um, we give them a thumbs down and we make them redo it. And so there usually is about three to four lines that have to do this and we have to get 10 perfect, uh, perfect tens. And so that's measured and, uh, really <laughs> monitored quite closely with our assistant coaches and myself. And so after every rep, I look around and if there's an assistant coach giving me a thumbs down, then that doesn't count. And so 
it honestly, Adam, it's not a difficult drill, but it's a mentally exhausting drill. And what you can determine from that drill is what guys are going to start complaining, <laughs> what guys are going to show bad body language, what guys are going to start infighting within the group. Um, it tests and it, it really, it exposes those guys that need, uh, uh, kind of a rewiring of, of philosophy and, and of mindset. And I feel like once they can work together as a unit to master that drill, um, then I feel confident that we can go through anything. And before I do scheme, obviously we will install scheme and everything you have to be, you know, before a spring practice or a fall camp, but that is one of the first drills that we, we do every practice. And I do that every single, every single spring ball that we go into, um, you know, obviously in the spring before the season. And I think it's just an outstanding way to build that culture and that mindset within your offense. That's fantastic. Um, right, let's get into uh, coordinating an offense. So if any of the listeners are young coaches or maybe they've recently been promoted to being an offensive coordinator and this is their first time around, do you have any advice on how to approach coordinating an offense from day one, from scratch? What are some of the things that they should be thinking about? Yeah, I think I am, like I said before, I'm a big time uh, effort and culture based coach. And so I, my big philosophy that I take, and I, I think you can apply these, these, this philosophy to just regular life. Um, you have to, you have to be real with yourself and you have to find out what you are good at as a, human being and as an offensive coordinator um, you have to find out what you excel at are you a good people person um, are you a bad people person are you a good schematic coach um, you have to do a self inventory and say all right these are the things as a as a person and as a coordinator that I am very good at and then once you decide what you are very good at and what you're very what you're not so good at um, you double down on those strengths that you have and you you maximize those strengths as much as possible I've always been um, really infatuated by the air raid offense, by the, you know, by using the entire field in the pass game. And so I'm, I've, I feel like I've mastered that, um, part of the game. And so I, I, uh, feel like I'm a good people person. So I, I use motivation. I use culture building a lot. And so I maximize those things. There are certainly things that I'm not good at that I don't really focus on too much. And so I've always felt confident wherever I go, uh, that I can, I can hang my hat on those things that I'm really good at. And then you kind of build off, build off those things and use your, use your staff. If, if you have deficiencies and weakness, weaknesses in yourself that your offensive line coach doesn't have, then you better use your offensive line coach or, your, or, or another assistant on your staff and use those guys to help you out with your deficiencies. Um, I guess the last thing I will say that I think is super important is that every team that you have is different. And so there are some teams where I can't run the air raid offense because we don't have the personnel. And so you better be able to adjust and you better be able to find out what, just like I mentioned with finding your own uh, strengths and weaknesses, you better be able to evaluate your own team and find out what strengths and weaknesses they have as well. And then maximize those things that they do very well. And then run, run those things till until the cows come home and kind of hang your hat on those things. And I think that's where that success comes from. Sure, and just to refer back to you talking about the air raid and you being very competent in it, and obviously that's something that you hang your hat on. Just thinking about a young coach, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounded like you were implying that maybe they, if they don't know what they want to run, they need to find some, maybe some kind of inspiration in terms of something that they like the look of or some, something that piques their interest. 
and then just dive into it and research it heavily and start to become a master of it. Would you say that's fair? You're exactly right. And I think as you probably have, have noticed yourself as a head coach, um, there is endless scheme. I mean, there is so much scheme out there that you can, you can uh, really go down rabbit holes researching all these different uh, schematic uh, ways of doing things. But I think that's dangerous as, especially as a young coach. And so, like you said, if you don't have that, if you don't have necessarily something that you are in love with, and I think that research and that maybe spending time with other coaches, uh, finding out what you like from them and then getting really competent at it and then running it. Um, and, and having that as your identity at BYU, I, I worked with an offensive coordinator that he was, uh, he, he was a master of making things extremely simple for the players. We ran the air raid offense. We had a very competent run game as well, but he, he made those thing, those concepts um, and that scheme that we ran at BYU, he made it so simple that our guys didn't have to think. And so they were, in, in essence, going on that field and we were running simple plays over and over again, but we were competent and confident in uh, running those plays uh, versus any different look that we would see and, have, and, and we would have success. Um, and so instead of kind of like, letting the defense dictate what we did. We kind of dictated what the defense did and we just got really good at what we were what our identity was. And uh, we felt confident that we could, you know, have success against any defense, any coverage, any front, just because of that identity and that confidence in the system. Sure. Um, so let's, let's think about if you, you were in a situation that you might have in the, in the UK or, you would have going into a new program, you're presented with 25, 30, maybe more offensive players of different shapes and sizes and abilities. And let's say you are an airway coach. What are some of the initial things that you're looking at in terms of, well, what am I going to build around? Are you going to be, are you looking at your quarterbacks first and seeing what their talent level is and then working through the other positions? I mean, is there an approach that you take or is it just a case of this is the scheme that I'm going to run? And these guys will need to fit towards it. Yeah, that's a really good question. And I've, I've always considered myself a very good, um, I, I've always considered myself very aware of, and, uh, of reading people and how to communicate with people. And so I've always relied on the staff that was there previously. So uh, for example, I, I went to a division three school from BYU. So I went from a division one school to a division three school the staff, the coaching staff there had been there for uh, several years. And so first and foremost, they knew that they knew my offensive philosophy. But before anything, I sat all of them down together as an offensive staff. And I said, hey, what can we do really, really well? Who, who are our best players? Let's write them down. If we had to walk into a uh, cage match with 11 guys right now, who are they? And we would, we would list our their, their, their idea of who our best players were. And so I've learned, I learned really quick that you win games by utilizing your best players. You're, you don't, you don't win games by running some scheme that they can't run. You find out what they can do really well and then you maximize and build that scheme around them. And so a really good uh, example is that just to build off that point was my first year at Willamette we were able to run exactly what I wanted. We had a very good quarterback um, and we ran exactly what I wanted to run. We had a ton of success. We scored 42 points per game. The next year I had a quarterback that was extremely mentally tough, but he just was not that skilled of a thrower, <clears throat> but he was, like I said, 
very tough, very extremely competitive, extremely smart. <clears throat> and we had the number one running back in the nation. And so we really relied, we transitioned from almost an air raid offense to uh, running the ball 60 times a game and throwing it 20 times a game. And I relied on that quarterback to manage the offense. I relied on him to get us in the right uh, sets and to make sure things were running smoothly. But we, you better believe that we fed that running back and, and we, we built that offense uh, more based off a run play action uh, mindset. Sure. And that, that leads nicely onto my next question. So going back to the idea that a coach, a new offensive coordinator is trying to build an offense, he's evaluating the players that he's got and starting to come up with something. Are there any uh, simple techniques or any advice you can give in terms of how they match their run game to their pass game and make sure that they complement each other? Is there anything that they should be thinking about from day one? Yeah, I think um, <clears throat> I am a big believer in every single run play that I have. I want some sort of play action off of that run. And so I think it is absolutely key to uh, make sure almost at an obsessive uh, rate that whenever you talk about run game, you better have some sort of concept that mirrors that action in the backfield and that uh, sells to that defense that you're running the ball. And then I think, I think that play action, that's where you get the, uh, I think that's the secret sauce to those, those play actions that pop wide open. Um, There's some schemes where, you walk into a game and I'll never make it, you know, the majority of my play sheet, but there's always maybe one or two runs that I just can't find a play action for. Maybe it's just too complicated of a play action. Maybe it's hard on the offensive line, but that, like I said, that's, that'll, that'll, that's pretty rare. It'll usually be one or two run concepts that don't have a play action off of it. But the, the heavy majority of the rest of those runs, whether it be an outside zone, um, complimenting a naked play action pass or whether it's an inside zone and you have more of an inside action play action pass, whether it's a gap scheme in the run game where you have pullers, we, we complement those with boots uh, where you're pulling a, a guard and you're just giving those safeties and those linebackers the exact same looks every single time. Um, and you want those safeties with dirty eyes. I call it, you want them thinking that you are running the ball. You want them coming down, uh, below that hard deck is what I call it. It's it's really in that eight-yard area uh, within the line of scrimmage. You want them coming down in that hard deck area in the box. And uh, I think that's that's where those, like I said, that's where those play actions become efficient is if you can really marry that, that run and pass game. Sure. And just to build off of that, it sounds like, and please do correct me if I'm wrong, that you're more of a fan of the traditional play fake but it's always going to be a pass as opposed to the, uh, the RPO systems that have become popular in recent years. It's, it's a great question. And uh, I, I incorporate a ton of RPOs in my offense. Here's my philosophy on RPOs. And I think uh, like you, you just mentioned it, it's, it's kind of a fad now. I think everyone, it's exciting. I think it makes it easy for the quarterback, but you, uh, I don't get too cute with my RPOs. And here's what I mean by that. I don't base my offense off of RPOs. Um, I base my offense off of run play action. And then I complement that uh, main philosophy, that run play action offense. I complement with that with uh, occasional RPOs. And so I've, I've, I've been in offenses and I've, I've actually, as a coordinator, I've, I've 
almost become obsessed with trying to find an RPO on every single play. And I think, I think one thing you could risk is just making it too complicated for your quarterback. Uh, my, my RPOs that I run are extremely simple. It's usually running. It's usually reading uh, a, either a, a D gap defender and, and as a linebacker, who's maybe a, a Sam linebacker in the, on the field or, or I'm reading a, a deep safety. And so I, I think, as soon as you start having your quarterback in the RPO game reading more than one player, I think that's where you make it really complicated. And, and it's very easy to do that in the RPO game. There's just so many endless possibilities that may look good on the whiteboard, but then you explain it to a 18 to 22 year old college student and uh, it kind of blows his mind. And so I don't get too cute with them, but they are certainly effective when we do use them. But I, I, will, I will say that the, the heavy majority of what we do um, is more of a play-action uh, philosophy. And when you look at it on film, um, you can see it's, it's kind of a comical thing as you watch these commentators on ESPN even. They're good at what they do, but sometimes these commentators can't even, uh, they can't even decipher the difference between an RPO and a play-action. So the play-actions usually are going to look the exact same as an RPO. Um, we're, just, we're just not we're not running the ball where it's a, it's a strict, uh, you know, play action pass. Sure. Um, I just want to talk about install for a second. And I, my personal opinion is that how to effectively install an offensive defense or special teams is grossly like, undercoached over in the UK. And what I mean by that is these days with the internet and clinics and podcasts like this, there's a wealth of information out there and, there's dozens and hundreds of very good coaches in the UK who have absorbed themselves into scheme and they know a lot of, about the X's and O's and that type of thing. But I don't, sometimes you get coaches who have very good playbooks, complex playbooks, but they, they're not installing it in a way that players are picking it up um, to be effective. So with that as the context, do you have any effective ways or advice that you could perhaps um, provide to coaches who are trying to install an offense during their preseason periods or their camps or whatever it may be. It's a, it's a pivotal thing to your design and your operation. I think if your install is unorganized, um, it's a recipe for disaster. And so one thing that was a humbling thing that I, I realized really early in my career is this, is that as coaches, we spend all day at the office and I'm, I'm obsessed with football. I love football. I've done that. I'm crazy enough to have done that for my career. And so I spend all day thinking about football and I go to the office. Like I said, our coaches are there at six o'clock in the morning. We leave super late at night. Unfortunately, the college students that we coach, they don't do that at all. <laughs> and so they love football, but they're not thinking about football nearly as much as we are. They are, they have school, they have their social lives, they have their faith, they have so many other aspects of their life. And so if you're putting on the plate of a college student, everything that is in your brain, you just, you dump it out on his plate, like, and you expect him to memorize it really fast and be efficient at it. Um, that's absolutely a recipe for disaster. And so we have a very systematic approach with our installs. I. I try my absolute best to, to uh, keep my installs uh, never going over three. And so I have a three-day install, um, and I keep, my, I keep every bit of the offense in, that, in those three days. I think there's 
power and repetition. And so for instance, if we're in fall camp and we go Monday, install one, Tuesday, install two, Wednesday, install three, that next Thursday, we're, you know, we, we're, we're going back to install one. And so what you see is that your, your players, um, then on that, the second time they, they rep that install one, um, those things become very familiar with them. And so I've always been a big fan of repeating those installs within a week. And so for instance, um, I don't like running install one. And then the next time those players see install one is, is three or four weeks later. I think that's just very counterproductive. And so there's something to be said for muscle memory. There's something to be said for repetition. And so we try our absolute best, like I said, to fit that entire offense in those three days and then rep those uh, uh, installs at least twice within, within a week. Sure. Thanks, Coach. Um, I would like to talk about film for a moment. So over the last 10 years or so, more and more teams over in the UK and in Europe have been filming their practices, not to the same level that you guys are doing over there in the college, uh, college football, but we're using practice film and um, we're evaluating it during the week for the ready for the next practice. Do you have any uh, techniques or tips on how to effectively use practice film in order to, to improve the efficiency of your offense? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, I think it goes back to kind of what I was talking about previously is just keeping it simple for the players. And so I've been in film sessions before and I've, I've gone down I've mentioned this phrase before, but I've gone down kind of rabbit holes of trying to overcomplicate film study when really the magic of film is to, as a coach, you better find tiny, small, uh, small tips, small effective tips that maybe three or four uh, per opponent that a, for instance, if I'm teaching a quarterback and I'm teaching them him about a, a certain defense that we're going up against, I will usually have, probably three to four tips um, about their coverage, about their safeties. Hey, here's a tip that when this safety lines up right here, it's usually going to be this coverage. 90% of the time it's going to be this coverage. If his hips are aligned like this pre-snap, then 95% of the time it's going to be this coverage. And so I don't overcomplicate it, but I tell them, hey, here's, here's three or four tips that now you can take from this film room. You can walk on the film on the field and you can say, hey, that's an easy tip that my coach taught me from film study. It was, it had a 95%, um, you know, efficiency. So I know it's very accurate and I'm going to use that. And I think that's the secret sauce. We're lying to ourselves, Adam. If we, if we try to give them 20 different things um, on each concept and say, Hey, remember this, these, these film tips, I'm going to give you 20 per concept. We're lying to ourselves um, if we think that, that that's going to stick with them mentally. I mean, it just it does not. They don't retain those things, and so keeping those keeping those tips very efficient, making sure your data backs it up, and then, like I said, making it uh, making it efficient for those guys so they can apply those things that they've learned onto the field. Absolutely, and I think not just the players themselves, but I've I've been guilty of being in a position of giving them the 10, 20 tips and then forgotten hey, what those tips are myself. <laughs> yes. Um, just talking about Dixie State for a moment, you're, you're making the jump from Division 2 to Division 1 FCS. Um, I'm not necessarily talking about the jump in that level, but in terms of install, do you reflect your install based on your future opponents for that season, depending on whether you have a certain opponent early or late? 
or anything like that? Or do you just follow your install plan regardless? Yeah, no, really good question. I think a lot of that comes in the off season. And so that's the beauty of having spring football. Um, I usually go into every spring ball with my base install that I believe in. And then you find out really quick during those 15 practices of spring what your players can and cannot do. And so then you spend the rest of that summer with your coaching staff tweaking those installs. Um, I've had times where I've just totally eliminated certain plays because we just could not execute them in the spring. Um, and then sometimes you just, you're, you're maybe, you maybe have an injury here, here, here or there in the spring and you, uh, you kind of wait and, you know, put those schemes back in in the fall to see, you know, if they, uh, the guys that come back from injury, if you can execute those get at, at a high level, but that off season is, is a key post spring uh, just with the coaching staff of tweaking the schemes, tweaking the installs um, so that you can carry those into fall camp and you're now in fall camp running what you know you can run. And so I don't necessarily do that off of my opponents. I, I kind of keep the same. It's, it's more, it's, it's more of a focused approach on what we, we can do as a unit. And it's never the, it's never the philosophy of, of focusing on someone else. It's always focusing on us and, and what we can do efficiently. Sure. Um, and in terms of game planning for future opponents, so let's say you've played a game on Saturday. It's now Sunday or Monday. You're preparing for the game the following Saturday. What's your process through the week as an offensive coordinator? And what are the things that you and your offensive staff are doing uh, and looking for to prepare for that uh, upcoming yeah. opponent? Yeah, I think we, we uh, once again, we take an extremely systematic approach on that. And if you... If you go into a game planning uh, week uh, and you don't have a plan and you're unorganized, um, you better believe that your game plan is going to be unor unorganized. And, and really, if it's an unorganized week, you end up just reverting back to your what you're used to. We're creatures of habit as coaches. And so you, you essentially just revert to what you're used to and, and you don't really rely on any data or anything that you, you see on film. And so we have a systematic approach, like I said, uh, first and foremost, we identify the strengths and the weaknesses of, of our opponent. Um, what, who are their good players? Who, who do they hang their hat on when they, when they're in a crunch time situation, who are they, who are they using? Um, who are they, who's on the field? What, what player on the field, um, if any has a deficiency. And so if there's a weakness in a corner or a safety, um, we're, we're identifying those. And then as you move on throughout the week, you are, you're in essence breaking up uh, certain situations that you're going to face uh, in that uh, game. And so you break those up uh, every day. So usually on Monday, we, we focus on control down. So first and second down, and those are, those are more easy for me just because that's kind of our, our bread and butter, those first and second down calls. So I can kind of more uh, kind of shoot from the hip and kind of throw them on the board. Uh, what wins and loses games is those critical are those critical situations, those critical downs, uh, third downs, third and short, third and medium, third and long, red zone situations from the 20 in. Um, usually, if you are losing a game, if you lose a game, um, I would I would argue that probably a, a very very high percentage of the time, it's probably because you're not good on third down, or you didn't score touchdowns in the red zone. I think that's just a, a key aspect. And so we start really focusing on third down and red zone on Tuesday. Um, once we have kind of our base uh, first and second down game plan in, uh, the rest of that week is just getting those guys constant 
repetition at those those third down calls and those red zone calls so that we can convert on third down and score touchdowns in the red zone, like I said. Sure. And we fast forward to game day. What obviously you're the OC, you're most likely calling the plays and things like that. What are, what are some of the responsibilities you're giving your offensive staff uh, and the positional coaches, and how does that help you uh, manage the game as an, o, an OC? I think I think I, I'm I'm probably regurgitating a, a common theme, but I've just I'm so bought into it is that it follows that same philosophy of you got to keep it simple. And I think you you hit it on the head, Adam, when you said that uh, you've been guilty, and all of us have of maybe giving our guys 20 points per concept. And then what happens as a coach, we usually forget those things ourselves. And so I've noticed that in, in, in a game situation as well. If, if you go into a game with your coaching staff and you have 50 things for them to look at on every single play and the communication is complicated. And, and as you know, during a game, the emotions start um, rising, you start kind of getting in the heat of the moment. You're going to, you're just asking for a breakdown. And so we uh, were systematic, and so I, I give my coaches extremely simple uh, but very important things to look at, and I want great, great feedback. We're going to follow a, 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 very, uh, a very efficient uh, communication path every, every time we uh, get on the bench. I'm usually not hearing a bunch of outlandish things from my coaching staff, and so I don't, I don't want to hear, hey, we need to run all these crazy trick plays or we need to run some crazy concept that we've never ran before. Usually it's, hey, coach, they're doing what we thought we, they were doing. Here's one adjustment they might have made, and it'd be nice to maybe come back to this later on. And so I just want very simple but effective modes of communication, tidbits of, the, of communication that I can easily jot down and that I can easily come back to. Usually if you overcomplicate it and you overcomplicate the, the information, um, like you hit on earlier, you're just going to forget it. It's just, it's, you haven't practiced it enough. And usually those things just don't work. Sure. That's brilliant. And just to complete the cycle, now we're post game or we can even be talking about practice in the spring. Do you do anything in terms of gradings or any systems in terms of providing feedback? If so, what does that look like? And um, what are the positives from getting from that? Yeah, it's such a that is such a debated uh, kind of a discussion. I, I've done both, honestly. I uh, to be honest with you, I've had more I've had more um, just success not grading. I I honestly I don't. I, I've uh, there was a couple times in my career where I just obsessed over grading and grades, and I felt like the majority of my time was spent on just getting these grades right, and it took forever and you give the grades to the players, it gives them a good indication of kind of what you saw on film, but they look at the grade for two seconds and then they're off, they're on to the next opponent. And so I, I just feel like, I felt like the, the amount of work that I was putting in on those, on those grades wasn't, it wasn't getting what I wanted uh, from the players. So I, I'm more here, here's my approach to it. And once again, it kind of comes back to that simple, uh, simplistic thing. I, I don't want to call myself a simple, a simpleton, but I think uh, there's some power to that. Um, I make a cut up. And so I make a cut up of really good things that we did in the game that have a common theme. And then I, I make a cut up um, usually no more than 20 plays of things that we need to work on and things that maybe were common themes that contributed to this loss. Um, and usually if you lose a game, it probably is no more than 
maybe 10 to 20 plays of why you lost the game. And it goes back to usually those critical downs where, hey, guys, here's 10 plays in this cut up. And here's the common theme in these 10 plays. They're all third downs and they're all red zone plays. And in these, in these third downs, we did not convert in the red zone. We didn't score touchdowns and let's watch this. Let's watch the cut up. Here's the common theme of the cut up. That's what we need to fix. And I think that's a more, I think it's a more streamlined approach rather than going in with wasting your, wasting your whole weekend with these grades that the players look at for two seconds and then having a 10 page packet of all the things you did wrong. I think it's not streamlined enough. And I don't think these 18 to 22 year old kids remember all the things that they need to work, they need to fix. And so I believe in, in streamlined processes. I believe in, in making it simple for the players so that they can, they can go back on the field and, and uh, have that confidence that they, they know what they need to work on and they know, they know what they need to fix. Absolutely. And I, I hope it's safe to assume that if you're doing those cut-ups and it is, as you described, maybe 10 plays or all third downs and they're red zones, that's going to dictate for you and your coaching staff what you're going to focus on in the following week. Is that fair? Oh, 100%. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely accurate. Sure. So we're going to start wrapping up. and I know you've got um, staff meetings and things like that to get to. Uh, but one last question. Do you have, as an offensive coordinator, a favourite run play or a favourite pass play that just gets you excited? You know it's a play that um, you have a lot of success with. And if so, perhaps you could break that down for the listeners in terms of some key coaching points in what you're looking for. Yeah, absolutely. So one of my one of my favorite player plays in the run game. We see it every week in NFL and college now. Um, so it's it's a copycat sport, just like every sport is. But I think that's it's the way you teach it. It's it's inside zone, and I actually call it split zone. And so basically, what it is is having a tight end or a wing in the backfield. Um, I've had fullbacks before who line up that they're fullback bodies, but they line up as a wing. And so we go, we'll go, for instance, inside zone going to the left, and then we'll bring that uh, fullback or that wing position uh, back to the right. And his responsibility is usually uh, blocking that opposite side C-gap defender or bypassing the C-gap defender and working up to the alley defender, whether it be a backside backer or a safety. And what it does is why I like this play is because you get all aspects of, of what I love, you get downhill run action. And so you give your, your running back an opportunity to hit, hit a, a run play downhill and give yourself good positive yards. You give your quarterback for the most part, someone to read, whether it be a C gap defender or whether it be a D gap defender um, in an RPO situation. And then what you also do with that split zone action, if you think about this run play, you have, your offensive line going one, one direction, and then you have that wing or that tight end uh, going another direction. And so you ensure that you're, you're probably going to get someone, whether it be a linebacker or a safety with dirty eyes, with bad eyes, who gets confused and who ends up fitting in the wrong gap. And so I've had uh, a ton of these, these certain plays um, in the run game where you, you – confuse a, a second level defender you got two guys in one gap and you and you can you can hit it for for big gains and so that's kind of a run play that we hang our hat on and uh, I really believe in it absolutely and I've had success before in terms of running that split zone and the natural next step is the as you say the full back or the tie and goes to that backside c gap and then yes. you can play off play action off that 
get them in the flats or anything like that. So imagine Absolutely. that's similar to what you do. No, hundred percent. Yeah. It's a, it's a great, a great play. And then like you just said, there's so many things you can do off of it with play action with run game and with our play actions and the RPO stuff. I think there's just so many things. It's, it's almost endless what you can do off that, off that action. Sure. Well, we're going to start wrapping up. I uh, appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Um, lots of great information there, both new and experienced offensive coordinators can take away. Um, before we let you go, I'd like to give the, the guests uh, an opportunity to share their social media handles should anyone want to reach out and talk to you. Um, would you like to share your Twitter handle or anything else? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm, uh, that's kind of the biggest form of communication um, that we have as, as coaches now. It's a great, a great uh, source of uh, communication for coaches and players. So my Twitter handle is at Bills, B-I-L-L-S underscore Kelly. K-E-L-L-Y. That's my, my Twitter handle. Follow me and, and uh, DM me if you want to get in contact with me, and I'd, I'd be happy to, to uh, get in contact with anyone that wants to reach out and has any questions. Brilliant. Thanks, Coach. I'll let you go on, and um, best of luck for Ditsy State in the 2020 season with your new challenge of playing Div 1 ball, and hopefully we can get you over in the UK sometime soon. I'd love it. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you again to Coach Bills for taking the time to talk with us. Tune in next time for another Bapka Coaching Podcast episode.